Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Welcome to the Spoken Word Show on 3CR Community Radio. My name is Brendan Bonsack. 3CR broadcasts from Wawandri land in the Kulin Nation, land whose sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and into the future. My guest today is Nikki Vivica, poet, actor, stand-up comedian, burlesque and improv performer, among many other talents. Her work was recently performed in an online show, Body Uncertain, and she was performer in the Green Room Award-nominated show, Gender Euphoria, and winner of both the Midsummer Poetry Slam and Trans Poetry Slam, as well as being runner-up for the 2019 Melbourne Spoken Word Prize. Doesn't that seem like a long time ago? Nikki will be a co-feature at Girls on Key in October, and I caught up with her recently for an online lockdown chat where she revealed another of her talents, filmmaking. My graduating project was a documentary. I made documentaries. My graduating project was a documentary about homoerotic Harry Potter fanfic. Well, it was about all forms of homoerotic fanfics, but I was particularly taken with the Harry Potter idea. So I had, like, I had these artworks of adult um, Harry and Draco, so they've graduated from school and they've reconnected uh, 10 years later. Um, they meet up in the Leaky Cauldron Tavern and um, realise that they've got more in common than they thought. Um, <laughs> so, and I commissioned an artist to do all these artworks of gay Harry and Draco. There is a lot of innuendo in Harry Potter. And when you're reading it and you're like a, going through puberty, as a lot of people are when they're reading Harry Potter, it's like there's, there's, there's so much tension, which is not explored by the author. We talked about Harry Potter fanfic. We talked about Star Trek fanfic, which is where a lot of their homoerotic fanfic came from was Kirk and Spock. And I sort of like explored the reasons why that happened, um, sort of in filmic reasons, because it's like you've got these two characters who are shot as our romantic leads and they've all like, so Kirk's always like gorgeously lit and then they do these like, you know, hero shots of him. And then you see him and he's talking to Spock. Your subconscious is going like, these two, these two, there's something going on. <laughs> I never watched them until I did my film. Because they were always too kind of too daggy for me. But when I was seeing it as a gay romance, I got into it. I'm like all the like the camp 60s outfits and the painted backdrops and stuff. And it all works. It's like, no, this is just a camp romance between these two dudes. And I got quite into it for a bit after that film. What about the 1960s Batman? That was a camp romance too. Oh, yeah. I like. I love actually like the history of the, the Batverse. <laughs> um, but just their... their relationship like because you know obviously like you know when Robin was born when they were doing that thing of having like you've got to have like the relatable character for the young boys reading it um just hanging out with his mate Batman um and then people were like this could look gay and they're like <laughs> none of that and so they brought in Batwoman um and Batwoman was brought in specifically to be Batman's love interest um, it's like, he can't be into it. Robin is into Batwoman. So she was brought in as a specifically Sandy gay thing. And as soon as the, the code was released, they were like to do it, they made Batwoman lesbian. Like, and they just made her gay. Like, she's my favourite character in the whole, whole Batverse. I, I love what they do with her character. But, like, I love that they made her gay. And then, yeah, and once you've got, like, you know, it's sort of contemporary adult Robin and Batman, they do look so gay. Like, in the show, like, in the TV show that I grew up on, 
aka the only real Batman. I don't like modern gritty Batman. <laughs> I only like the Kapow Batman. They were so camp. The whole thing was so camp. Every character in it was. If you were a superhero, what superhero do you think you would be? That's interesting. Um, I've always liked, because I've always liked the sort of like trickster type superheroes. Like I always liked Mystique from the X-Men who could like change shape and, you know, she's sort of a bit. I'm always drawn to those kind of like sireny, <laughs> tricky characters for some reason. This says nothing about me as a woman. It's just nothing about me as a person. Um, but for some reason I always like those, those kind of characters. Um, I'm a big, big fan of um, like Wonder Woman and Batwoman. As like they're ones like whose whose comics I actually actually read a bit of. I can tell you actually who I cast myself as. I had this like ongoing fantasy for years when I was like teenager, I think. You know when you're doing about being superhero, and I had my idea for a character. I imagined like Xena, you know Xena Warrior Princess. I imagined having a show like Xena, except instead of being based on the Greek myth, it'd be based on Norse myth and the main character would be a Valkyrie who's like fighting all the mythical monsters and doing superhero stuff. I had this dream that that's a show that I wanted to be like the star of. What was it about Wonder Woman that appealed to you? I like the modern Wonder Woman. Like Wonder Woman's gone through so many different styles from her, like her beginnings are interesting (laughs) as a character. Like she's both a feminist icon, but also represents some the very particular interests of the creator, like with the lasso and stuff. Like the creation of Wonder Woman is, is interesting. He also invented the lie detector machine, the polygraph machine. And Wonder Woman has a lasso which she puts around people and makes them tell the truth. And he invented that. And then he also invented the polygraph machine. So he was obsessed with this idea. Part of what I really like about like the modern Wonder Woman, they characterise her like really as like, she's an Amazon, like she's a warrior woman. So she's ripped she's an athlete and she's got like an athlete body type she knows how to fight with all these different ancient weapons and stuff like that and she's goes sort of against like the feminine stereotypes of of superheroes and so she's very powerfully feminine like that yeah it's it's a bit of what i like about the batwoman character as well like she's she's tough but then she's got this whole her batwoman character is like it was almost like a drag character she puts on the wig and the um, the makeup and the heels and stuff. And then she's like, you know, a bit of a butch lesbian underneath it. <laughs> it's like, you know, she's both believable as somebody who would go out fighting and doing stuff like that. And I like when you see the character and you see what the super version represents to the non-super version. The classic superheroes are all, they all have a normal persona and they have the super persona and you see what that super persona represents to them. Uh, and that's really what the story is about. What is it that this character needs? What is the heightened version of that character? As an artist, do you ever get the sense that there's a normal Nikki and there's an artist Nikki and that the, the artist Nikki is the, the super? Yeah, actually. That's, very, that's a very good point because I feel most myself when I'm on stage. Off stage, I feel very awkward, like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, why am I here? I don't fit in. I have a lot of those sort of feelings off stage all the time. When I'm on stage, I know exactly who I am. I know my purpose. I know how I'm doing this. I feel glamorous. I feel competent. Um, I feel connected with everyone in there. Like I feel connected with audiences in a way I don't feel as much as people on a one-to-one level. You know, my biggest intimate relationship in my life is with my audience. I'm certainly much more honest on stage. 
I talk about things on stage which I never dream of talking about with people in person. Um, and, you know, gradually, like, my offstage person has become more confident and more like my onstage persona as time's gone on. But I feel like, you know, on stage is where I'm most me. And it is a bit like that, I think, with, you know, that's what superhero characters represent, I think. They're not not the person. They're the best, biggest, most version of that person. Tony, I used to actually, before becoming an actual artist, I used to draw comics, which started as me drawing parody comics of people I went to school with and parodies of the teachers and stuff. And I got in a lot of trouble for those comics back in the day. Um, but I used to start doing that. I did used to draw... I used to draw superhero comics as well. I came up with a bunch of characters and they would, I would use them to sort of express, express things about myself. I did have like a transgender superheroine who I, who I drew who was based on how I imagined myself like as a kid, basically as a teenager. <laughs> this is so dorky, but like I know these dreams of myself as like this tiger lady, um, martial arts lady um, who's sort of half tiger. And so I created that as a superhero character. It's like their, you know, mainstream persona is like, you know, they're in the closet. They're not out as, as a woman, but then like their superhero character would be. I used to work for a mental health organisation and I turned our logo into our, our logo was like, looked like a knight because we were sort of the old school, uh, these old school um, organisations. And I turned the logo into a comic book character. Um, <laughs> it was like a, a knight who went and fought against different like, mental health monsters and so all the mental health things that you could be fighting at they were the big monsters and so there was like depression was this big kind of like black beast that you couldn't put down like you could kill it and it would just reform and come back and stuff like that anxiety was like a horde of little goblins that would just be um at all the time and there was I had a like a gender dysphoria one was in there as well and that was like all the other monsters were guarding this um, kind of princess was locked away and that was the goal of this like hero was to have, try to rescue the princess but any time he went in there that would get all the other monsters to what happened to that oh it it was literally something I scribbled on pads and I was meant to be taking minutes in meetings and doing doing admin stuff uh <laughs> nothing ever happened with it it was just a thing that I did um you know like this is like I, ages before I actually came out, but, you know, you do that sort of thing and that was your way of expressing those things. Did that come out of a, like a fear or a feeling that you needed to suppress yourself before you came out? Yeah. Yeah, well, because a lot of writing before, before sort of being out publicly as a, as a trans woman, then I would use those personal writing, like private writing, as a way to express a lot of things. So I would write a lot of you know, both comics and prose stuff um, with queer characters or on themes of gender with trans characters. Um, but I never sort of show them to anyone because I'd be like, oh, God, I can't show anybody this. But it would be how I had in my life the kind of things that I wanted in my life. Um, so you create characters like I wouldn't, I barely knew any queer people when I was younger. I didn't get to meet any other queer people. But I could write a, a story full of them. And that way, of course, like if somebody did find it, they'd be like, oh, wow, this is a wild story that you're writing. Like they wouldn't necessarily judge you for it the way if you if you came out personally. So like it's both a, a comfort and a bit of a trap, I think, that kind of daydreaming or that kind of fantasising because you compartmentalise part of yourself into this fantasy world 
and you think that you'll be okay with the way things are on the day-to-day life if you keep this fantasy world alive. Uh, but of course you can't sustain it like that. And it also like it holds you back both as a person and as an artist like that. Because of course I never shared any of these things. I never tried to publish any of these things because as soon as I did, it'd be like, oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's adding, adding me if I do it. And so it would hold me back from actually exploring myself as an artist. So I found like actually once I was once I was out publicly, all my art got a lot better as well. I wrote much better things. I was much more confident in doing things um, because I'm coming from a very you know more honest standpoint. Uh, I'm coming more from myself as as a writer, and that's so important f- for all art forms. I think you've got to be coming from an authentic position. But it's like both, you know. I think both the art enabled me to be more authentic in my life and my life enabled me to be more authentic in my art. Um, and I was lucky to have had an arts career that's sort of taken me in that, that direction. Health Before Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen, which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. It's putting on lipstick with nowhere to go. Dancing in fishnets with a glass of Merlot. It's wearing high heels to strap round your home. All these things that we do when we're on our own. It's the recording light on your live stream for one. It's editing in one go, all six hot cross buns. It's telling yourself push up challenges are fun. The things that we do to not come undone. It's telling jokes on the net. It's eating pizza in bed. It's alternative timelines you run in your head. It's deciding it's high time you learn to bake bread. All these things which we do to prove we're not dead. It's taking a selfie with your bra just in view. Or a day in the garden to weed, hose and prune. It's downgrading your Merlot to cheap Aldi goon. Oh, there's so many lonely things you can do. It's going for a walk, just to spot autumn leaves. It's laughing too much as you scroll through the memes. It's making yourself endless cups of hot tea. These things that we do when there's nowhere to be. It's watching your friends on Instagram Live. It's another delivery of mail-order wine. It's shopping for a wand vibrator online. These things that we do to fill in the time. It's on fleek makeup, which no one will see. It's choosing a sad song and pressing repeat. It's your hand on your chest just to feel your heartbeat. All these things which we do to remember that beat. Silly things that we do to remember that beat. Desperate things that we do 
to remember that bit. All these things which aren't quite the things that we need. You are on 3CR Community Radio. The program is Spoken Word. My name is Brendan Bonsack. The piece you just heard was by my guest today, Nikki Viveka, written during one of this city's pandemic lockdowns. And I'm talking with Nikki about her journey of coming out as transgender and the role that her art played in that. The big art form for me in getting me out was doing improv, because um, that was like, you know, I'm getting to, you know, do multiple characters every week, doing lots and lots of characters. Uh, the form of improv I did was completely gender fluid, so it's just like, you can be whatever character you want in this. And that was so important for me as, for me as well, because I was terrified of being caught anywhere near the drag scene when I was in the closet. I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> I don't want to be anywhere near that. I don't want, can't be seen around um, the queer world because, um, you know, then people will know, people will know and people can't know. Um, but then I could do improv and, you know, just get up every week and, and play characters, whatever gender, uh, and you work out who you are that way, but it's in like in this low pressure environment, but people are just laughing at the jokes and enjoying the art of it and it's not like you sort of suddenly have to present a particular way or not no no one would, would judge you for it like I know certainly but I grew up in like in the 80s and, and 90s in, in Royal Queensland in a very very conservative time and place any kind of deviation from the standard fashion even would get you in trouble like and that's not even talking about playing with with gender or sexuality or anything like that it was just like there was the way that people dressed. And if you didn't dress like that, it was very rigid roles that people were, were put into and very harsh judgment if you if you stepped outside of them. The whole time I dreamt about running away and uh, changing my name and transitioning and just being like, oh, let's run away and, you know, do it. But it's scary. <laughs> it's scary. It requires a lot of logistics. Uh, that was the main thing that held me back, was like logistics. I'm just like, where will I find a place to stay? How will I get a lease on a place if I don't have... ID, how will I do this? And I was always held back by like, I don't think of the logistics and be like, oh, I guess I'll rest down the closet. So it's like you get held back by a lot of their expectations and a lot of the things. I've been trying to come out since I was 11 years old um, and I only came out in my 30s. So there's a good 20 years there of being too scared. Uh, like at home, it was, it was very hard to go anywhere because everybody knows everybody else's business. Even though it's a large rural town, your neighbours all knew your business. Um, so if I was going to go out of the house, there's a big risk of being seen and people being like, what's going on? What's going on with the, the queer at number 11? You know? And so it would be like mostly I would just have to stay hidden at home. Um, so just be like, okay, so if the parents are away and I've got the house to myself, <laughs> I can be myself. But you sort of never think of going out in, in public really and because you get such negative reactions from from people it was very um it's very very scary uh so I, so I mostly didn't go out at all and I had this kind of double life to this day I'm surprised that I kept it that secret like but sometimes the house was like a French farce like it would literally be like I'd need to get from one room to another without being seen um so I could get changed uh and like people would be in the house and I'd be like <laughs> 
and having to like you know doors and stuff it's just like it astounds me that I actually got away with it it must have been very sneaky but also I must have put so much effort onto that like the amount of mental effort that went on to keeping my being trans secret while living in a house um I had two houses between my, my two parents but the amount of effort involved in keeping that secret was like really quite um incredible do you think it was a secret or do you think that they maybe they knew? Ooh. Mm. Like when I was very young, like when I was a kid, like small kid, people would talk about, would talk about it a lot. I did this, um, the same name I've got now, Nikki. I was, I insisted on my girl name when I was a kid, which is, which is nice now because I've got like little cards and stuff, which I've signed. Like the first, the first thing I ever wrote uh, that I remember writing and I've found where it's like, it's a birthday card to my dad, which my grandma helped me write, um, <laughs> and um, which is signed Nikki. So that's really nice to have all that that kind of stuff. There's a lot of discussion about my gender when I was a kid, and I know that my mum considered that I was trans and talked to people about it, but there wasn't any sort of support for it back then. And back then the response to a trans kid, to a gender queer kid, was that you had to stamp it out of them and you had to discourage it. And if you read anything that was written about trans kids back then, it was this needs to be stopped. Uh, so there would be efforts to kind of discourage me from being feminine as a kid um, and to try to throw me into, you know, you know, boy activities and stuff, which I sucked at. <laughs> I sucked at all of that and the boys did not like me. Like the, the boys could all sniff me out. They were like, oh, no, no, you don't hang out with us. I remember like when I was, I got super, super sad when I was down about like 11 or 12 or so. And I looked up the word um, transsexual in a dictionary, um, just the word that was used back then. We didn't sort of have transgender yet. Um, but I looked it up and going, oh, oh yeah, that's me. That's what I'm dealing with. Um, but even at that age, like 11, 12, I knew that was, it's just a super scary thing to come out as. Um, it was completely illegal in Queensland at the time to be queer. Um, and see, there was a lot of lot of hate, and a lot of the hate towards gay people, especially focused on people being gender non-conforming. So it was there was a fair bit of attention to it, and people never forgot that. But for most of my like sort of teenage years and beyond, it was always used as a way to attack me. Uh, it's like either as a joke or, or as a put down or something. Um, and it makes it harder to come out. People being aware of it makes it harder because you're like, oh, if I, it, if I admit this to people, then all the weapons I've got against me are there, ready to go. Like all the things they've been saying about me are right. All the judgment that I felt hanging over me is ready to crash down. And so actually that level of scrutiny on my gender because I was really feminine as a, as a kid made it a lot harder to even think about coming out. Um, and I, you know, in that point of time, I would monitor myself so closely for everything. You'd monitor everything. Like, how's my wrist line? Does it look strong? Does it look? And I, I'd let it down all the time. I'm not, I was not good. I was not good at um, disguising that. And I would constantly, like, lose friends and stuff like that because you'd be hanging out. I'd get comfortable with people. And then they'd be like, what's with you? You're talking like a chick. This is weird. And then those people wouldn't talk to me anymore. And you'd sort of just like bounce around constantly. It's like always, always aware of it, but 
always feeling that the goal in life was to to hide it um, and to squash it in myself. People see so much. They put all like these power dynamics and value judgments on gender. I remember when I was with my my first ever partner, like my first ever um, you know sexy partner. I haven't had that many, <laughs> um, but uh, you know when I went Kenya's with and. And they would see me being feminine uh, and they would treat it as like a power thing. So if I was being, um, you know, if I was being, being me, if I was being girly, then they'd be like, ha-ha, now I get to push you around. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. Like I'm in my power when I'm being feminine. That doesn't make me like subservient to you because I'm being feminine, but it, was so strong in the way that people would see you and it was so against what it represented to me against everything that the womanhood represents to me and it made it again you know it made it hard to come out so I'm like well I don't want to be I want to be bait for fetishists I'm not interested in being fetishized um I'm not interested in going out to clubs and having people sexualize me for for this and there was so much of how it was depicted and how it was presented back then was as a, as a sex thing and being asexual and not really interested in all that much of that stuff. I saw myself as a completely different kind of being. Because it was uh, like a lack of role models? Well, yeah, it was. When people would present trans people, especially in the pop culture of, of the day, they would be presented as men dressing as women. They'd be presented as cross-dressers. They would be presented as that. I'd look in that light, but I'm a woman. I'm not one of these people. So I wouldn't see myself in that. I wouldn't see myself reflected in that. And so I was just like, well, how do I as a woman deal with this situation? And it sort of didn't involve a lot of the things that people were, you know, were sort of expected. <laughs> That's one thing I, I think a lot of people don't understand is just how much how much that's, that sense of myself has coloured everything I've done in my life. And when people look at transition, they see it in this very simplified terms. Oh, you were, you were one gender and now you're another. And it's like, no, you're always this person and you've always had the same both had the same gender. It's just you make the decision of whether you're fighting it or hiding it or whether you're living it and, and celebrating it. And that's such a long road for you. It was a very long road. It was very, it was very long. And, you know, obviously I, I spent a lot of time thinking about ways it could have been quicker, but then, uh, you know, like the time, place I was growing up, maybe that would, that maybe that my whole life story would have been quicker if I come out then. Like, I mean, people did that. You know, certainly when I was, when I was growing up, violence against trans people was expected. Uh, it was treated as an excuse for violence if somebody found you a trans. Um, people were killed. Those sort of things were really, they were really hard to deal with. And then you'd see that happening and you're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to die. I want to be alive. I think also, like, you know, I spent a long time, like in the, in the early 2000s when I moved to Melbourne, um, and I moved down, like, with intention to come out. <laughs> uh, but then I got involved, like, in a in a straight-passing relationship and it was just, like, and I found different, I found the people in Melbourne dealt with gender differently than um, back in Queensland and Canberra. And I'm just like, well, maybe things aren't actually that black and white. Maybe things are okay down here. Um, and, you know, eventually I'm just like, oh, no, no, I need to come out. <laughs> I need to come out. I can't do this. But... You know, I don't regret that period of time that I spent with my partner at the time um, and doing that because that was also beautiful. There's a lot of 
uh, there's a lot of beauty in that. We could have got through it all faster, but, you know, I had a lovely relationship and we're still very closely connected to each other. Um, I still write poems about my ex-partner. I've got stacks of poems about her. And it's, um, so like if you, you know, if I imagine this alternative version of my life where like I was super confident at, uh, you know, at 17 and came out as soon as I was out of the family home or whatever and, you know, moved to Sydney and did whatever. Like I can imagine this, I can imagine that life. But I'm like, but then I would lose other things which are really valuable to me like my relationship and I think that so many of the things about myself which I value now and which have given me the strength um, to do what I do with my life so many of those came from experiences I had in the closet anyway and so whether your roots direct or circuitous I think it's all important would you like to share another poem with us um so this is called last knockdown The last time I had a night like this, lying on a lawn looking at stars, my hoodie gradually dampening from the grass while bats stealth about in a neighbor's trees and crickets peep soft harmonies to my iPod's melancholic pop. The last time I offered up my hours to contemplation of the sequined dark in the oasis of a share house yard to repetition of the same sad tune, which I sing to the face of the rising moon in a voice soft as a whisper. The last time I had such a sweet nocturne, absorbed in the sparkling vast above, and the song of another heart's decaying love, beamed into my blood by the buds in my ears, while I catch the moonlight in my tears, was the last time that my world ended. The world I mourned was smaller then, being exactly you and me wide. That last time I lay beneath the sky, willing my body to dissolve away, become pure music, beam into space, so a distant planet might have proof of queer life in the universe. A different yard, a different world, and we two very different girls. Yet the night has kept its sparkling spell. I used to look at the stars more often, but always made the wrong wishes when they fell. If we fast forward to 2020 and the pandemic, do you think that perhaps you drew on all of those early experiences of loneliness and isolation to help you in this current situation? Oh, that's that's an interesting question. I remember when lockdown first started, I'm like, oh my God, it's like being back in Queensland. One of the things I felt was a lot of weariness because I'm like, oh, my God, it has taken me so long to get my life to be where I want it, going in a direction I want, actually free, surrounded by the people I like, and now I'm back. Now I'm back um, just in my room. I'm just wearing dresses in my room. This like I was when I was 15. Nothing has changed. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Did I even come out? Have I even, like, had a life? But I think it... It did. I mean, especially early on in lockdown, I, th- I think I felt like I was, I felt I dealt with it initially a lot better because I was prepared. Um, I didn't go into that same shock a lot of people did. I was just like, no, we've done this. I don't want to do it again, but I can't do it. I can't go through isolation. Over time, I dealt with it less well because I didn't get to see other queer people. 
And I think over a period of time of not seeing people like me anymore, I started to feel very disconnected. I started having this, Brendan, you think I'm such a dog, but I started having these fantasies about like, oh, maybe I could just get a boyfriend and renovate a house and just be like a normie. I'm like, I couldn't do this. I could not do this life. I would be like, I would be over all of those things within a week. But I had these kind of like, because, you know, you end up being surrounded by just like heterosexuality and suburbia and like feeling like the odd one out again. And you're like, how can I be acceptable in this world? And it started having those sort of thoughts again of being like, how can I make myself acceptable in the straight world? And certainly when I was, you know, doing a lot of the writing I did in lockdown, a lot of the introspection I did in lockdown, I would revisit a lot of things. There's a lot of things that I went through when I was growing up, which I've never properly processed. I couldn't deal with them at the time because it was just like, you just had to keep your head down. And then once I came out, I'm just like, well, that's all behind me. I'm not dealing with it. And then I'm forced to sit down and just look at myself for a few months <laughs> in a row. I'm just like, okay, now I've got to process all that. Now I've got to deal with that. And so I wrote a lot of poetry about old experiences. Um, I wrote a lot of poetry sort of delving into things in my past and, you know, some of the harder experiences, which I don't talk about. And I did a lot of exploration of that. I did exploration of other parts of my identity I don't think about as much. I did uh, writing about Latvian identity. I'm half Latvian. You know, again, that's a thing that doesn't come up much because the Latvian community doesn't acknowledge queers at all. So it's things I didn't uh, sort of talk about that much or you just don't engage with. And I didn't re-engage with that again um, involved in that. I did a lot of did a lot of thinking about sexuality and stuff in, in lockdowns. Normally, like most of the time, I don't have any time for romance, <laughs> sex, or anything like that. And But I realised in lockdown that part of that is I get all that, what most people get from that, I get from theatre. I get that validation from performing. And stuck at home by myself, without that validation, I started getting like all these kind of yearnings I wouldn't normally have. And I'm like, oh, okay. So there's like in my hierarchy of needs, which doesn't look anything like the Maslow pyramid, but in my hierarchy of needs, obviously like I just have other things that satisfy those, those urges, which I normally get. And as long as I'm performing, I don't care if there's any other form of intimacy. As I said, like my main intimate relationship is my audience. But then, yeah, like being home by yourself, and it's just like, oh, <laughs> So if you're right, you find that you do still have those, those things there, um, uh, but they only come out when your normal ways of meeting them aren't there. So I wrote a lot of, I wrote a lot of sapphic poetry in, in lockdown as well. I wrote a l- lot of love poems to, um, to a friend who doesn't feel the same way. I was just like, I had this big unrequited crush, which went for like a year and a half. I was like, wrote all these poems about it. Yeah, I, I did a, a lot of digging up of things. When there's some experiences you have in your life and you just, paint over them like a bad landlord just like oh there's some there's some damage there flick of paint no one will notice but it's is ultimately better to take that damage out uh is it is ultimately better to engage with all that stuff um so it meant that the isolation process was very difficult sometimes very emotional at some points but i think on the whole it is a it is better than having just like charged ahead with life and not dealt with those things i remember you saying in an online show uh, that screened during the pandemic that you went back to watching David Attenborough documentaries. 
<laughs> yes. Yes, I watched I watched a lot of David Attenborough. It was like, um, it was a childhood comfort thing. I used to like watching his animal shows. And that was a nice, um, speaking about being in the closet as a kid, like watching animals uh, and that sort of thing, it was just a nice soft thing that I could do that nobody would touch. Um, I, could, I, I could watch animals and stuff. And animals are great too because they're all like, they're all over the place for their sexuality and gender. And, yeah, I could watch documentaries about fish that change gender according to different temperature um, and about asexual lizards and about all sorts of creatures like that. And so I could just, you know, you could see diversity in animal world. When people do the, the, the bigotry thing, so many of them pull back on these false scientific notions about what, uh, what gender and, and sex are. But if you actually engage with biology on any level, you're just like, well, nature is a free-for-all. Uh, anyone can be anything um, and many creatures are all the things and so David Attenborough sees me through many many a lonely night turning <laughs> 20 but I do get emotionally invested I get emotionally invested in the animals and their stories um, so much the point of crying over the animal stories so this is a poem which I wrote um, about that it's called Why I Cried Watching David Attenborough There is a species of oceanic dolphin known as the false killer whale, in Latin, Sudorca crassidens, which means false killer whale with fat teeth. Dear Sudorca crassidens, I don't think you're false. I see you, maybe only on TV, in documentaries, but I see you and I respect you for the animal you are and I think your teeth are fine. You are a valid whale. You are your own dolphin, and you deserve a name that's all your own. Do not live by comparison to an orca who's better known just because they have a gig at SeaWorld. You are not a false killer whale. You are not some cut-rate free willy. You are a valid whale, and a genuine killer of squid and fish. And other dolphins too. Okay, I don't know about that specifically as a life choice. But it's your life, babe. You do you. And don't be ashamed to claim your place in the marine food chain. Because you are a legitimate cetacean. A whale. Real and true. Do you not crest the same waves? Do you not sing in the same deep? Do you not do the thing where you blow air through your blowhole? You do. And the sea is for you as much as it is for any creature. Oh, and if you see them, tell the sperm whales that they deserve better too. Dear Sudorka, you deserve a name that doesn't throw you shade because your life and your whaleness are not fake. And not even Attenborough's dulcet tones can tell you your identity is not your own. Yours sincerely, with love, from me, a woman. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Nikki. Oh, you're so welcome, Brandon. This has been, it's been delightful. Nikki Viveka is performing at Girls on Key on the 6th of October with Lish Sketch. That will be an online gig. Please check the Girls on Key socials for details. You can also sometimes catch Nikki on the 855 AM dial in the program Shebop with Yvette every Monday at 10.30 AM. 
Spoken Word, this show is on every Thursday at 9am and a podcast of this and many of our other shows is available from 3cr.org.au forward slash spoken dash word. My name is Brendan Bonsack. Thank you for listening. Thank you.